It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, January 12, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. I'm a Fox News contributor. I'm political editor at townhall.com, host of this fine program every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. That's when we air live. If you can't catch some or all of the show, well, all of the show is available every day for free on demand after the show on the podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. That's GuyBensonShow.com. All the information is right there. Programming note, in my capacity as a Fox News contributor, I will be back on the panel tonight with Brett Baer. Special report coming up in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern Fox News channel. See you there. You can set your DVR or tune in live. On today's radio show, Senator Bill Cassidy, Republican, Louisiana. He's also a medical doctor. He's going to be here later this hour. Carl Rove, in our middle hour, will join us. Always interesting to pick his brain politically. We'll have Carl here just about an hour from now. And at the top of our final hour, the happy hour, 5 p.m. Eastern, Peter Ducey. Recently recovered from COVID, got into it a bit with Jen Psaki this week. We will talk to him about his beat, the Biden White House. That's coming up today on The Guy Benson Show. Fox News alert as we begin. Stats, 62.3 million cases confirmed of COVID all in, cumulatively in the United States. That's a fraction of the real number. The death toll, people dying in America of or with COVID over these last almost two years, 840,581 now. The Dow is slightly down, down 40 points right now, trading at 36,211. During yesterday's show, we let you know that President Biden was expected to speak in Georgia. He and the vice president were there to beat the drums on voting rights, quote unquote, He was expected to call for an end to the filibuster on voting rights legislation. And he was going to try to whip up the base and whip up support. It wasn't exactly clear what he intended to actually accomplish, but they decided this is what they needed to spend some of their time performing about. And so they did. And I told you on the show yesterday, we were not going to cover that speech live at all. Because I was convinced it would be filled with lies and dishonesty and demagoguery. And I was not going to subject you to that without the ability to fact check him in real time. So rather than playing some of the speech live and constantly interrupting the president to correct him and correct the record, I decided just not to go to the speech at all. I'm glad I made that decision because it was a pack of lies. It was a disgrace. It was an absolutely disgraceful performance by a desperate, flailing president. We will play some of what he said, and we will respond. There was also a really good response from Mitt Romney in a Senate floor speech yesterday. We will get to some of that audio later in the show. I think it's really important to hear how Romney responded 
But among many other things, Joe Biden spent a good amount of his speech yesterday attacking anyone who disagreed with his plan or the plan he's endorsed as being a bad person, a racist, an enemy of the country. And just to be clear, just to remind you before you hear these sound bites, what he's talking about is one of the smallest majorities in the history of the House of Representatives. And by definition, the, small, the smallest possible majority in the U.S. Senate ramming through on a partisan basis with no Republican votes at all, a radical, legally dubious federal takeover of our entire election system in this country, uprooting and repealing a bunch of state-level laws or superseding them, and putting a Democrat-only bill, and that they say, oh, it's about January 6th, it's about the Capitol riot, it's about what Georgia has done with their new laws, and of course they lie about what Georgia's done, and Texas, what they've done in their new laws, they lie about that, Biden calling it worse than Jim Crow, what a disgusting insult, total misappropriation of history. That's their justification, right? That's their rationalization. That's their excuse for wanting to pass these things, except they were promoting exactly these same things before any of that stuff happened. Under other pretenses, it is a partisan power grab based on a crisis of voting rights that doesn't exist. The fundamental basis here, the catalyst for all of this, unto itself, is a lie. And the only way they can try to make it seem urgent and needed is by lying further. What would this partisan takeover do, among other things? As I said, it would overrule a bunch of state-level laws. This is the state's job to administer elections, but they want the feds to take over. They want to outlaw photo ID laws. This is something that 80% of the public supports. Overwhelming majorities of people of color support voter ID requirements because it's common sense. The Democrats are against it. Why is that? You don't have to be a cynic to draw certain conclusions there. They also want to enshrine the insane practice of ballot harvesting where some third-party activists can go around and collect people's ballots and then deliver them to the authorities when they see fit. With all sorts of chain of custody questions, that's a crazy thing that they do out in California. They want to impose that on the whole country. They want to force taxpayers to fund the election campaigns of candidates they oppose. I mean, it's just one horrible idea after another. And this is their quote-unquote pro-democracy solution. And because, they say, January 6th or whatever they're going to talk about, voter suppression, Jim Crow, all the dumb, mendacious talking points, they say because of all of that, this is so important right now that we need to blow up the rules of the Senate, break the rules of the Senate to pass it on the thinnest of margins literally imaginable in the Senate and almost the exact same over in the House should they do it. Now, there are at least two Senate Democrats who won't go along with it. So the good news is that it appears that they don't have the votes. 
but they want to make a big show out of trying, and they want to make it crystal clear that they would absolutely do this if they had the votes, and that should put a chill down your spine and should remind you of the stakes of the 2022 election and a bunch of elections to come, because if they get bigger margins, God knows what they would do. There's nothing too radical, apparently, for this Democratic Party under so-called moderate Joe Biden. And if they had even two or three more votes in the U.S. Senate right now, it would be a five-alarm fire, I think. But they don't have the votes. But their base is angry. They're angry that Build Back Better didn't pass. They're angry that they aren't getting their way on this. So I guess this was just a tantrum that the president and the vice president decided to go and perform in Georgia. So pointless, so impotent, that even Stacey Abrams couldn't be bothered to show up because of a scheduling conflict. Nonsense. She didn't want to be there. The left-wingers are mad and were boycotting the event because Biden isn't tough enough, and that's the side of his party that he keeps listening to. He's obsessed with them, and they still don't love him. And Stacey Abrams doesn't want to cross them. Also, the people of Georgia, generally speaking, not a big fan of Joe Biden as president. His approval numbers are terrible there. And Stacey Abrams like, you know what? I, you, you have fun over there. I've, uh, I've got this other thing. But thanks. Have a great time. So Joe Biden had a couple things to say yesterday. Our president, President Unity. For example, he said this in cut four. History has never been kind to those who've sided with voter suppression over voters' rights. And it would be even less kind for those who side with election subversion. So I ask every elected official in America, how do you want to be remembered? At consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be the side, the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? This is the moment to decide, to defend our elections, to defend our democracy. He's shouting. He's mangling his words. He always does. But he's basically saying, if you support the voter suppression, which isn't suppression... You've got some reforms to some election laws to revert back to the pre-pandemic emergency footing of elections, plus expanding some of the voting options relative to before the pandemic. That's not voter suppression. He can say it. He can say it's worse than Jim Crow. None of that makes it true. In fact, it is untrue. And if you disagree with him, he says, you're taking the side of Bull Connor and George Wallace. George Wallace, by the way, who Biden, earlier in his career, bragged about being friendly with. This guy's such a fossil that he's attacking current opponents by comparing them to George Wallace, but he knew George Wallace and had some positive things to say back in the day about George Wallace. Amazing. It's a very Biden thing. And just to put a finer point on it, he wanted to make sure everyone understood that those who disagree with his partisan power grab for the Democrats to take over our elections and blow up the rules of the Senate in doing so, if you don't like that plan, well, you're an enemy of the country. Cut five. The next few days, when these bills come to a vote, 
will mark a turning point in this nation's history. We will choose. The issue is, will we choose democracy over autocracy, light over shadows, justice over injustice? I know where I stand. I will not yield. I will not flinch. I will defend the right to vote, our democracy against all enemies, foreign and, yes, domestic. The right to vote is not under attack. That is made up. That's a myth. But apparently, if you see things differently and you don't support his so-called solution, he's going to lump you in there as an enemy of the country, a domestic enemy. That was the framing there. I remember when people lost their minds and fainted onto the couch when the last president talked about the press being enemies of the people. And I criticized that. I thought Trump went too far saying that. Here's Joe Biden suggesting that half the country and more than half the Senate are enemies of America because they don't want to go along with his stupid program on election voting rights so-called reform. The vast majority of the American people support voter ID laws and oppose ballot harvesting. Are 70 to 80 percent of the country, would they qualify as domestic enemies, Mr. President? The demagoguery is absolutely shameful. And it's jarring coming from this guy who said he was going to defeat the virus. How's that going? And he said he was going to unify the country, bring us back to normal. And in his victory speech... Back in November of 2020, the night he declared victory, he said his mandate from the American people was decency and cooperation. I want to remind you of what he said that night and think about these words compared to what you just heard yesterday from the same guy. Cut 41. For all those of you who voted for President Trump, I understand the disappointment tonight. I've lost a couple times myself. But now, let's give each other a chance. It's time to put away the harsh rhetoric, lower the temperature, see each other again, listen to each other again. And to make progress, we have to stop treating our opponents as our enemies. They are not our enemies. They are Americans. They are Americans. The Bible tells us to everything there is a season, a time to build, a time to reap, and a time to sow, and a time to heal. This is the time to heal in America. Now this campaign is over, what is the will of the people? What is our mandate? I believe it's this. Americans have called upon us to marshal the forces of decency, the forces of fairness. Uh Aha. It's time to lower the temperature, listen to each other. Our opponents are not our enemies. It's a time to heal in America. Our mandate is to marshal the forces of decency. That's what he said the night he declared victory in the presidential race. He said later in that same speech that part of the mandate is cooperation between the parties. And here we are, less than a year into his presidency, and he's calling his opponents racists, segregationists, and domestic enemies. 
throwing out the possibility of cooperation and demanding breaking the rules so he can get his way against these racist enemies. It's come a long way, Joe. What an abject failure your presidency has been, your presidency has been so far. Oh, and the hypocrisy was not over yet. More on that when we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. So we spent the last segment comparing the words of Joe Biden after he got elected. Healing, cooperation, decency, not enemies. To the garbage rant that he uncorked yesterday in Georgia, packed with lies and demagoguery. It was pathetic. It was pathetic. I was disgusted. You can probably tell. Now, in order to push through this federal takeover of elections by the Democrats that Biden is now endorsed, the way to get there, he says, and the only way to do it, because they have a 50-50 Senate, is to blow up the filibuster. Because the majority should rule, he said yesterday. Cut seven. I'm making it clear, to protect our democracy, I support changing the Senate rules. Whichever way they need to be changed to prevent a minority of senators from blocking action on voting rights. (coughs) When it comes to protecting majority rule in America, the majority should rule in the United States Senate. You can hear him cough there. Maybe he's choking over his own words because he knows that this is not his own position. Senator Biden, 2005, when Republicans were talking about a minor change to the filibuster that they didn't do, by the way. The Democrats did it a few years later. The Republicans didn't. Biden was very concerned, very opposed when the Democrats were in the minority. Cut 39. The nuclear option would eviscerate the Senate and turn it into a second House of Representatives. If that were the case, we'd have a unicameral body. It is not only a bad idea, it accepts, upsets the constitutional design and, and does a disservice to the country. No longer would the Senate be a different kind of legislative body that the founders intended. No longer would yeah, the Senate be So he was be very, saucer. very opposed because of the founders and the Constitution. Eviscerate the Senate. Now he's for it. Subtle timing, Joe. It's so obvious. It's so transparent. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're back on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free every day. Joining us now is Dr. Bill Cassidy, U.S. Senator for Louisiana. He's a Republican and, as you may have gathered, also a medical doctor. And, Senator, it's great to have you back on the show. Welcome back. Hey, Guy. Thank you for having me. I am looking forward to talking with you. 
Well, we were just discussing for the first half hour of the show President Biden's performance yesterday in Georgia, where he really said a lot of things. He called for the evisceration, to borrow his former term back when he was defending the filibuster, of the filibuster, in order to pass this partisan power grab on elections. He said those who disagree are casting in their lot with George Wallace and Bull Connor. And he said that he feels like he has to defend the country against its enemies, including domestic enemies, which I guess would include at least 52 U.S. senators right now who aren't interested in this power grab. When you hear that type of rhetoric coming from this president who promised unity, healing, cooperation, decency during the campaign and in his victory speech in November of 2020, how does that affect you? How does that make you feel as one of the apparent domestic enemy racists that he's attacking? Incredibly angry. Now, he campaigned as a moderate who is going to attempt to heal our country and bring us together. And instead, it seems as if he's become a tool of the progressive far left, vilifying anybody who disagrees with him. And there can be serious disagreement here. For example, Georgia has more permissive voting laws than Delaware, yep. Biden's home state. Now, I presume he's not talking about Delaware being a totalitarian state. He's talking about, I guess, Georgia. And yet Georgia has the more permissive laws. So this isn't rooted in fact. It's rooted in what he desires the perception to be in order to further an agenda that, you know, let's face it, it's political. They want Democrats to have more control over the process. Their agenda is failing. So when your agenda is failing, you change the rules so that now your side wins no matter what. Guy, it can make us all angry. I don't know why he didn't go give that angry speech in Delaware to yell and scream at the Democrats who run the state where he was elected over and over and over again. And during his elections, there was no early voting allowed at all. There were some other rules that would be absolutely attacked as voter suppression by him today. That was the system under which he was repeatedly elected in the state of Delaware. But it never occurred to him that that was Jim Crow or racism or, you know, anti-democracy emergency some sort of situation in his home state if he really were serious about this type of thing he would have been lobbying his whole career to make changes in delaware but he didn't do that which i think is pretty telling it reveals that this of course is all about politics the vice president was with him down in georgia yesterday she had this to say about the filibuster in cut 14 senate republicans have exploited arcane rules to block these bills. And let us be clear, the Constitution of the United States gives the Congress the power to pass legislation, and nowhere, nowhere does the Constitution give a minority the right to unilaterally block legislation. Okay, so she calls the filibuster rule arcane. She accuses Senate Republicans... 50-50 Senate, I'll remind everyone, of exploiting this arcane rule, which now justifies breaking the rules to change the rules in their minds. Senator, you've been in that legislative body now for a while, including when your party was in the majority. I seem to recall her party, including her personally, engaged in hundreds, 
of examples of exploiting the arcane rule when it suited their political interest. Do you remember that as well? The hypoc- I absolutely remember, and the hypocrisy, even for Washington, D.C., is a little bit credible. Uh, when Schumer, Biden, Durbin, the rest have all claimed that we need to preserve the filibuster when they happen to be in the minority. And now that they have a 50-50 split with with the vice president breaking the tie and a 10-person split uh, advantage in the House, the country evenly divided is now when they decide they have to impose the will, frankly, not of just all Democrats, because some Democrats oppose this, of the far-left Democrats of those that really wish to transform our country, as they put it, to remake our country in the vision that, that, that the squad or that Bernie Sanders likes. Most Americans don't want that. They know that, and guy, that's why, when they, that's why they want to change the rules. Yeah, and now they're calling that rule the arcane rule that they used hundreds of times in recent years. They're calling that racist and a vestige of Jim Crow racism. Barack Obama test drove that argument it's been embraced by the democratic party i mean was it jim crow racism when they were deploying the filibuster over and over and over and over again during the trump administration after a bunch of them lined up and signed a letter demanding that the filibuster never be touched again so the the terrible thing about this and what makes me angry they are willing to malign 50 percent of the senate more importantly, 50% of the American people... More than 50% of the Senate, right? They're maligning some of their own Democratic colleagues. And they're willing to malign probably about 50% of the American people. Using terms you shouldn't throw around lightly. You shouldn't throw racist around lightly, because frankly, when someone says, I'm not a racist, but I'm being accused thereof, it just doesn't work right. Now, if you want to be so irresponsible in terms of how you speak of fellow Americans, not not somebody who clearly is, but somebody who uh, uh, isn't, but nonetheless you think you can browbeat them into submission by calling them a racist, that just poisons the well. That's what Biden said he wasn't going to do. It's what he deplored, and now what he's doing with all his heart and all his soul. Yep. We're less than a year into the presidency, and this is the depth to which he has fallen He's been willing to sink. And you wonder where the bottom might actually be for him, because he seems to me like sort of a a shrinking, sad president who's desperate. And part of that could be, I don't know if you saw the new Quinnipiac national poll today, Senator Cassidy, but it has his approval rating at 33% nationwide, 25% among independents. So a third of the country favors the job performance of Joe Biden, one out of four independents. Three out of four do not. How dare he speak on behalf of the will of the people or purport to do so and propose this radical stuff and blowing up the rules and all of these things when this man is collapsing as a president of the United States. It would be indefensible even if he were at 70% and super popular, but maybe his claiming the mantle of the people's will would be a little bit less laughable under that circumstance compared to what the reality is right now. I'm with you on that totally. I mean, obviously, we can talk about inflation at like kind of uh, 45-year highs or 43-year highs. and Yeah, new number out today. The southern border. 
Um, but, but I think it also fundamentally goes to this. If an overwhelming majority of the American people think there is nothing wrong with requiring a photo ID, they are so used to providing a photo ID to get on an airplane, a photo ID to cash a check, for those that still cash checks, you name it. A photo ID is a very easy step for them to do. And for the president to call people racist because they think it's reasonable that someone has to establish their identification when they vote just turns people the wrong way. It is it's using one of the ultimate insults for somebody in our society in order to attempt to manipulate them and to accept something which they know to be right, but you just don't want to do for political purposes. The president has come a, a long, long way from being the person who was going to bring us back together. Now he has decided to be the person who splits us apart. Yeah, and look, I, I'm not that surprised. I know that he took this, tor- this turn later in his life when he was vice president and he was running as this moderate healer. I also remember when he said that Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan were going to re-enslave black people back in 2012. So this guy's willing to stoop to a lot of pretty nasty things for political advantage. It just isn't working here in this case. I mean, how, how out of touch must it be to the average voter? Like, how tone deaf is it? For the president to decide, I'm going to go use my political capital, whatever's left of it, to go down to Atlanta, call a bunch of people enemies of the country and racists, in order to try to get something done that he knows they don't have the votes to do, he's going to be screaming racism and about the filibuster when the next day this brutal inflation number comes out where the cost of everything basically is way up people are hurting their wage increases are not keeping pace with the rising costs of everything the american people aren't happy with this and he's using his big moment to go scream about the filibuster so the democrats can blow up the senate rules and change all of the election laws in america it just seems completely incongruous with the moment and the needs and the concerns of most voters. I think that the best, the best, you, the best face you can put on it, and it's not a very good face, is that if you want to distract people from the fact that BBB failed for good reasons, the Build Back Better bill was, you know, four point nine trillion of spending, most of which wasn't needed, and certainly not paid for. Uh, and you want to distract people from inflation, which takes people that used to buy steak now buying hamburger, and people that bought hamburger now buying hot dogs. Um, uh, if, if, if you, you, you want to distract their attention from that, so you fill the headline with calling people racist. Now, it's kind of an ugly way to do it, Yeah, but it could be effective. We're talking about this instead of the fact that inflation is 7%. People can't afford to drive you know, their old car to work anymore. Um, it, it, but it's, it's a cynical, and it divides our country, and it's what he said he was going to do differently. Uh, instead, it's just a playbook that we've seen before. Senator Cassidy, I want to ask you another question about another topic where it might actually draw on not only your role as a United States senator from Louisiana, but also your role as a medical doctor. I don't know if you caught this the other day. Dr. Fauci was testifying up on Capitol Hill, and unsurprisingly, he got into a big, angry fight with Rand Paul, as he often does. And he accuses Rand Paul of personally attacking him and not knowing what he's talking about ever and slandering him. 
seems like some of the questions that Paul is asking, Senator Paul's asking, are pretty reasonable about the origins of the virus and what Fauci knew and when and some of the money that he helped direct over to that lab. It seems like Fauci keeps slightly parsing and changing his answers while taking great umbrage, always indignant and getting very angry with Senator Paul. He also got angry at another one of your colleagues. Senator Paul is a doctor. You're a doctor. Roger Marshall, senator from Kansas, also a doctor. He's been very pro-vaccine. He did one of those you know, vaccine PSAs. Fauci apparently wasn't happy with the questions he was being asked by Senator Marshall. And on a hot mic, Fauci referred to your colleague, medical doctor and U.S. Senator Roger Marshall, as a moron and then uttered an expletive. I just wonder what you what you make of that. Given what Dr. Fauci's job is supposed to be, I understand it can be frustrating to be criticized. Sometimes doctors are infamous for really not liking criticism, but he's a public servant. These are elected senators. They also happen to be medical doctors as well. And to be muttering about these people, these elected officials being morons, I just wonder how that strikes you. Well, God, I got to just praise God that they don't have hot mics on me all the time. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> My dog Same. ran away the Same. other night. I'm sitting there thinking I'm out here at midnight looking for two dogs. If there had been a hot mic. <laughs> Fair. I also think that this is a Senate hearing, of course, and some of the questions are entire. Even if you think that they're uncharitable to Fauci or things get a little bit too hot, or, you know, and, and more acrimonious than they need to be, isn't it sort of incumbent on someone like Fauci to answer the questions, keep his cool, and not accuse other people of personally attacking him with insults and then using personal insults himself? Yeah, it's a tough situation, man. I mean... You got to forgive somebody for being human, but you got to give uh, you got to give other people the right to kind of question. And uh, and I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not defending anybody. I'm just saying at some point, um, uh, um, you know, at some point I got to judge them by the way I judge myself. And I know at times I'm kind of frustrated and angry and say things I shouldn't say, sort of thing. Uh, as my wife could tell you, for example. <laughs> <laughs> I, look, look, I think that's a, a humble way to look at it. I was not impressed, you might be able to tell, with him being unable to uh, keep that particular thought to himself, given what his job is. Last question, and this very much taps into your background, your medical background as a doctor. Uh, this Omicron variant, what we're seeing, it, it seems relatively like good news in terms of being a lot less virulent. Uh, hospitalization and deaths not nearly as bad during this wave compared to other waves uh, with this variant. Just your overall thoughts on the state of this pandemic. We have about a minute or so left, Senator. Doctor, your thoughts on Omicron? We're learning to live with it. We're learning learning how to get back to life. Uh, We're learning that, uh, okay, if you take some mild precautions, ideally you're vaccinated, perhaps you've been previously infected, it makes the virus less likely to cause a problem. We're learning lessons that we're going to have to stay with, Guy, because this virus appears to be with us from henceforth. Dr. Bill Cassidy, U.S. Senator from Louisiana. I'm actually scheduled to be down in New Orleans next month for a couple days. Looking forward to be back, uh, being back in your great state, Senator. Always appreciate you taking some time to join us here on the show, and hopefully we'll talk to you again very soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Guy.
All right, thanks, Senator Cassidy. On the Guy Benson Show, we will be right back after this very short break. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show, I mentioned some of these polling numbers to Senator Cassidy just out today from Quinnipiac, just in the last hour. And this is a bit of an outlier, this poll, but it's not like the other polling is glittering for Joe Biden. But still, this is the latest. 33% approval for Joe Biden overall. 25% among independents. On the economy, 34% approval. 39% on COVID. Majority disapproval on the economy, foreign policy, and COVID, and overall. That's the situation for Joe Biden right now, and he's yelling about people being racist. Good stuff. From, from uh, Joey McUnity over here. That's the type of horrible political environment where I start to look at an internal poll like this. Isn't this interesting? A Republican internal poll out of Maryland testing if Larry Hogan, the current Republican governor, very moderate Republican, if he were to run for Senate in deep blue Maryland, would he have a shot? The incumbent is Democrat Chris Van Hollen. This Republican poll did a hypothetical head-to-head. U.S. Senate, Maryland, 2022. Larry Hogan, 49, the Republican. Van Hollen, the incumbent Democrat, 37. A 12-point lead for Hogan, the Republican. Now, look, it's early. It's an internal. Things would be nationalized. It's a blue state. I'm not sure Hogan is running. I don't know if he'd win. Certainly not by double digits, but that's an eye-opener. Keep an eye on that. It's the Guy Benson Show. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. A new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, just flying by today. Thanks for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com, that's our website, the podcast, on demand and free every day. GuyBensonShow.com. I'll be on Special Report tonight, joining the panel discussion. Looking forward to that. 6 p.m. Eastern Hour, Fox News Channel with Brett Baer. Fox News Alert as we enter our middle hour today. The Dow rallies and ends in the green, up 38 points, closing at 36,290. With us now here on The Guy Benson Show is Carl Rove, former Deputy Chief of Staff and Senior Advisor, to President George W. Bush, author of The Triumph of William McKinley. He's also a Wall Street Journal columnist and a Fox News contributor. Carl, great to have you back. I am coming to your city in a matter of weeks. Oh, fantastic. Let's talk offline about that. Yeah, maybe I should send you like a little uh, an email. In fact, let me write a note right now. Carl Rove email. It's my husband's birthday and he's spending it in Austin. That should be a lot of fun. Carl, Let's talk politics. I want to start with your most recent Wall Street Journal column about January 6th. Not to linger too long on it, but overall, what was your argument that you wanted to communicate around the anniversary of the Capitol riot? Well, I'm disturbed by how many uh, fellow conservatives uh, dismiss it as a group of patriots and uh, you know, you know, it's, it's, it was tourists wandering through the Capitol. 
I always like to sort of engage in a thought experiment. What if the other side did it? You know, what if the other side had done this? Uh, now, now, let's stipulate that, that a lot of the people who showed up at the Capitol had no intention of breaching the Capitol and, and trying to disrupt the meeting of Congress. They, they wanted to show their support for President Trump. But several hundred of them came bent on violence and brought others in. So what, what would have happened if Democrats had uh, declared similarly armed and attired, uh, had stormed the Capitol and attempted to have Congress uh, stopped from receiving the electoral votes for the 2016 presidential election? What if they claimed that the President Trump's razor-thin margins in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin resulted from extensive fraud, even if they'd never been able to prove it in a single court of law? And what if they breached the Capitol defenses and threatened violence against the Republican speaker and the Republican Senate leader? And what if they insisted that in his role as Senate president, then Vice President Joe Biden had the sole authority to seat Hillary Clinton's electors from Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, despite there being no effort, uh, successful effort, to assert fraud in a court of law? What if they said Biden had the sole authority to do that and install her as president of the United States? How would conservatives have reacted? Would we have said, oh, these were patriots, these, these were tourists, this was the right of, the, of a sitting vice president to unilaterally overturn the decision of a, of a state as expressed through both its election practices and in the vote of its state electors on, in December? Would, you know, would, really? Would we have stood by? So my point is, is that we as conservatives have got to stand for the rule of law. And those people who broke police lines, some of them armed with uh, – Poles and flagpoles and weapons and chemical agents and Zip ties. tactical tactical gear. They took tasers away from officers and turned them on. 140 officers were injured or assaulted. Uh, so we've got to let the, the, the rule of law stand and let this whole procedure go through the courts and, and hold uh, have people you know adjudicated in a, in a court of law in front of a, a jury of their peers and, and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, we cannot say, excuse this. We cannot excuse we, this. Yeah, if we're in favor of law and order and we support the police, there can be no defending of the beating of police officers during a violent riot at the Capitol building. And if we also believe in the rule of law, we also have to look at the, that you referred to there, Carl, the court cases, one after another, where judges found and ruled that there was not evidence that the election was stolen and that this was fraud, including some very conservative judges, a number of whom were appointed by Trump himself. That is also an element of respecting the rule of law in that whole process. And I think that the sort of alternate reality that you just painted or the hypothetical situation, the uh, the hypothetical situation where it was the shoe was on the other foot and the Democrats had done precisely these exact same things based on the same exact amount of evidence or lack of evidence, I think that that is, if people are being honest with themselves, a very obvious series of questions to answer about how conservatives would and should have reacted if it had been a role reversal situation. And, you know, I think that that is, well, we can leave it there, but I think it's a very compelling point that you make. In the meantime, Carl, we have the president of the United States, and we spent most of the first hour on this, going down to Georgia yesterday, 
lying his face off repeatedly about almost everything related to this alleged voting rights crisis that they need to fix with a partisan takeover and blowing up the Senate rules because of Jim Crow in Georgia and Texas or whatever. It was a a truly breathtaking flurry of dishonesty from Biden, but it wasn't just the dishonesty. It was the categorization of Republicans and even some Democrats who don't agree with him sort of not just uh, partially, but almost explicitly calling them racists, comparing them to segregationists, suggesting that they are enemies of the country, domestic enemies. I mean, this is pretty disgusting, outrageous stuff from any president ever. And it's particularly galling, I think, coming from a guy who sold himself to the American people as a moderate restorer of norms and cooperation. And that is not what we saw on display yesterday. No, not at all. Uh, I was terribly disappointed in it. And uh, uh, there's a, I, I wrote about this for my column tomorrow in the Wall Street Journal because you're, you're right. He, sub, he substituted adjectives for evidence. And the claims that he was making in that speech, you know, decrying voter suppression and election repression and, and, and pointing his finger at the Georgia Republican legislature. Let, 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 let me give you just two examples. He started his assault by saying, quote, they're making it harder for you to vote by mail. Now, what he's referring to is a state law that said local officials and private groups cannot mail unsolicited absentee ballot applications. No state law previously allowed it. But in 2020, because of the pandemic, uh, they, they, they allowed emergency regulations to be in place that allowed election officials to mail out, and, and political groups followed, uh, applications for, for um, mail-in absentee ballots. Because in, in Georgia, it's no excuse. You can vote absentee by mail. All you got to do is apply for the ballot. Well, when people were mailing out applications, the county was mailing it out, and Democratic groups were mailing it out, and so-called third-party groups were mailing it out. And so election officials received a wave of multiple requests from the same voter, because they got one from the county, and then they might have got one from Black, Black Voters Matter, and then they would have got one from the New Georgia Coalition. So what the Georgia legislature did is it said, you cannot mail out uh, absentee ballot applications. Now, Biden says that's voter suppression. Well, let's compare Georgia with New York. Like Georgia, New York requires people seeking to vote absentee by mail to apply for the ballot. They don't get mailed it to the mailed in the application automatically. In fact, New York voters turned down automatic vote by mail in a statewide referendum last fall by 55-45. Yeah, now, they rejected furthermore, it. Furthermore, they rejected it, turned it down. Georgia allows anybody, anybody can vote by mail absentee. All you got to do is say, I want to vote absentee, send me a ballot. New York, the only people who can vote absentee by mail are people who say, I'll be out of town on election day. I'm ill and unable to go to the polls. I'm disabled. I'm in a VA hospital or I'm in a jail for a misdemeanor charge. That's it. So uh, who's more repressive? When, when, when is Joe Biden going to fly to Times Square and denounce New York for being Jim Crow 2.0 because they severely limit the ability of people to vote well, absentee but, by mail? And Georgia says anybody point. can. 
the whole point yeah. is that it doesn't matter what the details are. It doesn't matter what the truth is. This is a power grab by the Democrats, and they're going to lie and smear people no matter what it takes, and they'll just simply overlook the obvious glaring hypocrisy. He also said this in Cut 13, using scripture to attack Republicans based on a dishonest attack. Listen. When the Bible teaches us to feed the hungry and give water to the thirsty, the new Georgia law actually makes it illegal. Think of this. I mean, it's 2020. And now 22 going into that election. It makes it illegal to bring your neighbors, your fellow voters, food or water. Oh, the Bible says give water to the thirsty, but Georgia makes that illegal. And I mean, it's just such a distortion of what the law actually says. But this was in a vetted presidential speech, Carl. Let's tell your listeners who, what, what the law said. The law said that every county has to provide standalone uh, water. That is to say, you know, like a, 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 a stand in which people can come up and get their own drink. But, but they said no group can provide food or beverages to voters within 150 feet of a polling place. And, and Biden said, quote, that's not America. Well, actually, it is. Because almost every state has similar provisions forbidding electioneering during polling places. You can't, you can't uh, cost voters. You can't give them things. You can't provide them food. You can't provide them drink. You can't within a certain amount of distance. In, in Delaware, it's 50 feet. In, in California, New York, New Jersey, and Illinois, it's 100 feet. So is that extra 50 feet in Georgia enough to say that that's Jim Crow 2.0? Do we really want voters standing in line to have people in political T-shirts representing political organizations or candidates walking up and down the line saying, would you like something to eat or drink? And if you want to do it, you can do it in Georgia, but you just have to do it more than 150 feet away from a polling place. I mean, thank you for the fact check. The president clearly either doesn't know that or doesn't care. We have 30 seconds, Carl, just from a political analysis and strategy standpoint. His approval rating is terrible. Inflation, a bad number again today. There are empty shelves in grocery stores, and the president is out there calling people racist and screaming about the filibuster. How is that in terms of political priorities? 30 seconds. Really bad. I mean, Americans are concerned about inflation and COVID and jobs and Russia and the border. And he's down there focused on election reform issues and embellishing and vilifying and misleading people in order to mollify the left of his party. It's not going to result in any action, but it is going to cause him to look more out of touch with the concerns of ordinary Americans. Bad mistake. That's how it looks. That's the choice he made. President Unity. All right, that's Carl Rove on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks, Carl. We'll step aside. I'm Guy Benson, and I am breathlessly awaiting the inauguration of Governor Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, which is happening this weekend. We're so close. We're almost done with Governor Blackface and his various failures. And I am, of course, pleased with the outcome of the election. I'm also eager to see what exactly Team Youngkin prioritizes. And what they're able to accomplish, because it's not like they're going to have full control over the government where they can do whatever they want in Virginia. It'll be somewhat tricky. I mentioned that Yunkin has tapped our colleague and our frequent guest on this show, Dr. Marty McCary, as one of his top medical advisors. I think that is excellent news for the people, the children, 
the schools, the businesses of Virginia. I saw some of the mainstream media headlines were, Yunkin taps Fox News contributor as dot, 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 obviously trying to reduce McCary down to a Fox News guy to signal to elements of their audience, oh, he's bad. And then you get into like the fourth paragraph and they mention, oh yeah, he's also a Johns Hopkins doctor and professor who's been widely published. Seems kind of relevant. But there's been some coverage now about the early days of what Yunkin might do. I saw the Washington Post had this quote, with Virginia enjoying a hefty surplus, even some Democrats, talking about the legislature, seem primed to go along with Yunkin's plans to cut taxes and create more charter schools. I say yes, please. If you've got all the Republicans on board and snipe off a couple Democrats and you're going to cut taxes and increase the number of charter schools in this state, which is woefully low, uh, that is not only fantastic public policy, it would be following through on major campaign promises. I hope that both of those things happen. Meanwhile, you've got this guy, uh, Greg Sargent, who's one of these sort of lefty hack columnists. He's very upset. He put out this scary tweet about Glenn Youngkin, who scared Virginia parents into believing that critical race theory indoctrination was real. By the way, it is real. It's on the Virginia Education website, by the way. I would note that little detail. And there are many examples of this sort of racialized identitarianism taking over schools in Virginia and elsewhere. That was not a red herring. That was not a made-up scare from Republicans. It's something that Republicans took advantage of because parents were seeing it and weren't happy. I know people on the left have convinced themselves in many cases, oh, it's all a giant right-wing lie. They made it up, and it's not true. And I hope they continue to think that because it totally distorts their own political reality. And it's way out of touch with what a lot of parents are seeing and experiencing. And it didn't serve them well in Virginia. But they're clinging to it because it's their own tribe. Right, And this is what they choose to believe. But Sargent writes that Youngkin got elected by scaring all these parents on CRT. And now what the Republicans might do in Virginia, and he has this scary list of bullet points. They might cancel a minimum wage hike. They might require voter ID. They might reduce early voting. They might expand open carry. And I say, sounds great. I hope they do all of those things. Minimum wage hikes often are counterproductive. They drive employers to automation or cutting hours or cutting jobs. They make it harder for entry-level positions for teenagers and that sort of thing. On voter ID, I mean, this is like an 80-20 issue. And it's long been the case in Virginia. So that is not controversial, although it's a scary thing, I know, for some leftists. The early voting is out of control in Virginia. It's months of early voting. It's nuts. You have early voting before debates even start in a general election season in some cases. Bringing that and reining that into something more reasonable, I think, is entirely appropriate. And expanding open carry. They hammered Glenn Youngkin on guns, and they lost. So I know that's a roster of horribles in the mind of a liberal blogger. It sounds like a pretty strong 
governing agenda to me. Glenn Youngkin will become governor in a matter of days. That's happening this weekend. The Guy Benson Show continues after this break. Some audio that I want you to hear is straight ahead. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through the show, halfway through the week on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast free every day. Well, yesterday, and we mentioned this, of course, at the top of the show, there was a speech in Georgia by the president, also the vice president. It was about so-called voting rights. President demanding that Congress pass a Democratic partisan power grab based on a phony crisis. And in order to do so, he insisted that the U.S. Senate blow up their own rules in a 50-50 Senate to rewrite the election laws for the entire country on a partisan basis. It's an extraordinary request and a radical one and an unserious one. But he made it. He made it angrily. We had a lot to say about that. In our first hour, you can go back and listen on the podcast to that opening monologue. But there was a speech delivered in response shortly after the president spoke. And that address was delivered by Senator Mitt Romney from Utah. Now, I'm going to play you quite a lot of his speech. I thought it was superb. But let me set up the context here. Because if you're a hardcore conservative and you're annoyed with Mitt Romney, there are some things that you're going to hear from Romney that will, in fact, probably annoy you. However, he was getting flack from some people on the right, of course, from partisans on the left for this speech. But my analysis, and I will note that when I tweeted about this analysis, several top-level people in Romney's office amplified my tweet, which suggests to me that my analysis was on to something. Let's put it that way. My analysis is that Romney was not directing what you're about to hear to a wide audience of the entire country. Yes, I think it plays well for much of the country. I think he makes a lot of really important points. For him, by his standards at times, this was a savage speech. But his audience was not the committed partisan base of the Republican Party, his party, nor was it an effort at persuading hardcore committed partisans from the Democratic Party. This was a speech, in my view, that was crafted to influence approximately half a dozen people in the world, all of whom happened to be Democratic members of the Senate. This was micro-targeted at fortifying the will and the resolve of Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Kirsten Sinema to keep their spines stiff and refuse to go along with all of this pressure and demagoguery. Not that they were showing any signs of wavering, but I think having someone like Romney make the case the way he did, they will listen to his words and it will have meaning to them. 
It will be encouraging to them. It will cut against the avalanche of ugliness, intensity that they're getting from their own party to go wobbly. Then there are also, and we talked about this yesterday as well, a handful of Senate Democrats who are grappling with whether or not they would want to go along with a power grab like this and detonate another nuclear explosion when it comes to the filibuster. They did it on a lower level on judges in 2013 after warning Republicans not to do it and calling it doomsday for democracy if the Republicans had done it. That was Chuck Schumer's term. Then they did it themselves in 2013. That, in turn, ended up burning them very badly during the Trump years. And there are many new federal judges that conservatives can celebrate, including three Supreme Court justices, because of what the Democrats did under Harry Reid in 2013. There are still a handful of them, a tiny handful, who are at least expressing misgivings about once again escalating in the filibuster wars, when almost all of them have said that they regret the last time they did it. They regret it so much that they're all lining up to do it again, with a handful of exceptions. And Romney is speaking to that handful. Not just Manchin and Cinema, but Coons, maybe Feinstein, maybe Tester, although he always goes along with Schumer, out in Montana. Mark Kelly in Arizona refuses to take a position on this. My belief is that Romney wanted to influence those senators in particular. And that's smart. That is strategically very smart. On Romney's part. One other thing before I get to his actual speech. And he will talk about Trump in ways that the Republican base will be annoyed by. But it will actually draw some blood, I think, from Democrats. For Romney to compare them to Trump. And for that to have a ring of truth. On elections and undermining institutions. I think that is pretty heavy artillery coming from Mitt. You have to think about who he's trying to persuade here. And again, this is the point I want to make before we go straight to this audio. Romney, over the last few years, for better and for worse, to the delight of some and the chagrin of many in the Republican Party, he has earned, he has banked some bipartisan credibility from the crowd that fulminates over putting your country over your party They have interesting definitions of what that looks like, but Romney has met some of those definitions. He was the only Republican senator to vote yes to convict on the first Trump impeachment. Then he voted yes again in the second impeachment after January 6th. He got a lot of applause, strange new respect from people on the left who had treated him like history's greatest monster just a few years prior when he was the GOP nominee for president. He also was a leading figure on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is part of his speech where he says we actually did work together on on infrastructure. We can make this happen on a bipartisan basis. We've lived it out. We just did it on this large piece of legislation. Whether you like that bill or now that law or not, whether you think that was a good proposal or not, Romney has the receipts to show the other side. I'm not a reflexive partisan. I'm an independent minded person. I vote my conscience. I'm not a reflexive right-wing hack. You cannot dismiss me as one. I was with you guys on some key votes that were extremely painful within my own party. 
and drew a lot of backlash within my own tribe, but I did it anyway, on legislation, on impeachment. I have this background. And the thing is, the Democrats that he's trying to appeal to in the Senate, they know it, and they respect it. So even if you might not, even if you think this is really awful stuff that Romney did, I hope you can at least appreciate the position that he's in now, where he has credibility with some of the people that Republicans need to stem the tide on this insane, dangerous Democrat power grab that the president and the vice president and the congressional leadership have all lined up to endorse. There are only a few fingers left in the dike, and Romney is there encouraging them to stand in that breach and stay there. And I think he does it quite well. Starting in Cut 29. I had the occasion to watch uh, President Biden as he spoke in Georgia uh, just a few minutes ago. And he said quite a number of things that simply weren't true. He also accused a number of my good and principled colleagues in the Senate of having sinister, even racist inclinations. He charged that voting against his bill allies us with Bull Connor, George Wallace, and Jefferson Davis. So much for unifying the country and working across the aisle. More troubling, however, he said that the goal of some Republicans is to, quote, turn the will of the voters into a mere suggestion. And so President Biden goes down the same tragic road taken by President Trump, casting doubt on the reliability of American elections. This is a sad, sad day. I expected more of President Biden, who came into office with the stated goal of bringing the country together. So Romney, of course, points out the unmissable irony of Biden running as a uniter, promising to unite the country, and then just scraping the bottom of the demagoguery barrel to bully people who won't go along and bend to his will on something that really is radical, based on a so-called emergency that doesn't even exist. Romney sort of playing the disappointed parent here. Again, that might grate on you, but you might not be the audience. It's about six people who are the audience here. And I think his words carry weight. And comparing Biden and Democrats to Trump the way that he did, for them, that stings. That's a take-a-breath moment when you hear that coming out of Mitt Romney. So he goes on, he starts talking about our republic and about institutions in our country, checks and balances, tools that were established by our founders, through our history, in our traditions and our precedents. And he starts asking questions of his colleagues about what the Senate might look like if the filibuster were to go away. In Cut 32, here's that passage. Consider how different the Senate would be without the filibuster. Whenever one party replaced the other as majority, tax and spending parties would change. Safety net programs would change. National security policy could change. Cultural issues would careen from one extreme to the other creating uncertainty and unpredictability for families, for employers, 
and for our friends abroad. The need to marshal 60 votes requires compromise and middle ground. It empowers the minority, and it's helped to keep us centered as a nation, fostering the stability and predictability that are essential for investments in people, in capital, and in the future. Yeah, if you had these one-party governments where they could just do whatever they wanted by simple majority vote, even in a 50-50 Senate, for example, to radically change economic, cultural, social, foreign policy, all of those types of issues to change policies, careening, as he says, from one side to the other, election to election, that is not a great or stable outcome. So he's making an institutional case, which I think is pretty powerful. He also forcefully rejects this ridiculous, insulting, novel argument that the filibuster is actually racist. He's having none of it. Cut 33. Abandoning the principle of minority empowerment would fundamentally change a distinct and essential role of the United States Senate. But today's Democrats, now with the barest of majorities in a 50-50 Senate, conveniently ignore their own impassioned defense of the filibuster when they were in the minority. Let us be clear that those who claim the filibuster is racist know better. For President Obama to make this absurd charge after he himself made a vigorous and extensive defense of the filibuster just a few years ago is both jarring and deeply disappointing. After all, I don't recall a single claim from Democrats that employing the filibuster hundreds of times over the last several years when they were in the minority was in any way racist. Exactly right. And I'm glad that he called out Obama, too. Obama's fingerprints are all over this grubby little piece of dishonesty and racial demagoguery from the left. When they use a tool hundreds of times, it's fine. When they're in the majority and they're frustrated by the same tool, all of a sudden now it's a relic of our racist past. Get out of here. Absolutely not. Stiff arm from Romney. Calling it out very clearly. He goes on. Cut 34. Only a few months ago, some of my Senate colleagues, Democrat colleagues, rationalized that the Senate couldn't function. And therefore, they had to get rid of the 60-vote rule. But then the Senate functioned quite well when it passed the infrastructure bill, armed services legislation, and a bill on innovation. So a few months later, some of these colleagues argued that in order to raise the debt ceiling, the 60-vote rule has to go. Then, with bipartisan cooperation, the Senate raised the debt ceiling. So now the Democrats' latest rationalization is that their partisan new election law must be passed. But Democrats have filed these voting bills numerous times over numerous years, always without seeking Republican involvement in drafting them. I like the fact that he points out some of the examples of the Senate working properly and functioning with the filibuster, despite all the hair-on-fire rhetoric about how everything's broken and it's no longer the cooling saucer, it's the deep freeze, whatever their rationalizations are. I also like that he points out correctly that even though they're pointing at January 6th and Republican laws in Georgia and Texas as the new crisis that justifies immediate passage and breaking the rules to pass this federal takeover of elections, Romney notes they've proposed and introduced exactly the same legislation in years past for different reasons, based on other justifications. The crisis is manufactured and cynical. 
And he closed with two really salient points that you need to hear. We'll play them next. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on the Guy Benson Show, we're walking through yesterday's, I think, smart and savvy and effective speech from Mitt Romney. And finally, his closing argument. Listen to these points. Let me note two more truths. The country is sharply divided right now. Despite the truth spoken by a number of good people in my party, most Republicans believe that Donald Trump, they believe his lie that the 2020 election was fraudulent, stolen by Democrats. That's almost half the country. Can you imagine the anger that would be ignited if they see Democrats alone rewrite with no Republican involvement whatsoever the voting laws of the country? If you want to see division and anger, the Democrats are heading down the right road. There's also a reasonable chance Republicans will win both houses in Congress and that Donald Trump himself could once again be elected president in 2024. Have Democrats thought what would it mean for them, for the Democrat minority to have no power whatsoever? And finally, Mr. President, I offer this thought. How absurd is it to claim that to save democracy, a party that represents barely half the country must trample on the rules of our democracy's senior institution. Well said. To save democracy, quote unquote, they want to break the Senate. What an excuse. And he says with so much mistrust out there, some of it misplaced badly, some of it legitimate, what would the reaction be if the tiniest majorities in recent memory in u.s history broke the rules in congress to pass a brand new law taking over federal elections with no input at all from across the aisle what would that look like how would that augur for the future of our democracy some important wise strategic targeted arguments for mitt romney yesterday responding to the president pretty sharply and making an appeal, a substantive one, and at times an emotional one, to the few Democrats who can prevent this from happening. I'm glad he made that speech. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show, coming right up. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the final hour on this Wednesday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for being here. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, every weekday, and from 5 to 6, it's the happy hour. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free. Catch me, by the way, in the next hour on Special Report with Brett Baer. I'll be on the panel today. By the way, I should mention, of course, that this happy hour is sponsored in part by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good and delicious. It is expanding by popular demand across the country, and it's about to expand massively in the coming weeks. 
More details on that soon. TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where they're sold near you. There'll be a lot more opportunities around the country for that soon, as I mentioned. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. I actually heard from a listener the other day who was out in California somewhere at a restaurant, and he got the menu, and boom, long drink was right there. He took a photo of it. He sent me a DM on Instagram. He ended up ordering the long drink. He told me he felt like he had to get it. It's like after hearing it so many times, it was right there. How could I not? And he loved it. I'm just saying. Joining us now is Peter Ducey, Fox News Channel's White House correspondent. Peter, it's good to talk to you. Happy New Year. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Guy. Happy New Year. So if I'm not mistaken, you just recently got over COVID, right? You ended up asking a question about this at the White House earlier in the week. But talk about that ordeal. Was it? rough was it pretty mild how'd that go i i think it was pretty mild um compared to what some others are experiencing but i traveled to florida to see my family and to texas to see my wife's family uh like two weeks ago and i you know you travel a lot sometimes you have uh, like a little bit of a a cough just for a couple hours but i didn't think anything of it so i was actually pretty surprised when i came to the white house last monday and tested positive, but uh, they oh. were very thorough. They they basically sent me home uh, for five days to isolate. Did not leave the apartment uh, for five full days, and then I went and uh, went to the bureau and was testing negatively. And then I came back here on on Monday uh, and was luckily negative. And uh, everybody is everybody is doing well. So you were flagged as COVID positive at the White House. I was, and so I, uh, via phone, got to know some of the folks over at the White House Medical Unit, uh, uh, who I had not yet dealt with. Uh, <laughs> it's a new in my, experience. In my first year here, had well, a long you stretch of negative tests, but uh, but finally uh, tested positive. There's nothing worse than being cooped up, especially if you're not really feeling that bad. You could have texted me. You could have walked over because we're basically neighbors and come hang out in the backyard. We could have put the fire on. We could have been distance. Outdoors is safe. Hopefully you never have COVID again, but just future reference. Next time. But I, you know what? If the White House Medical Unit tells you go isolate for five days, yeah, I'm you, just going to listen. You probably want to listen. I'm, I'm going to follow the rules. So. Then you asked the question of Jen Psaki, and that exchange got a lot of attention. And what was interesting about the exchange was the amount of anger and vitriol that it seemed to generate from critics of you and also critics of her. But I sort of thought the question was completely fair and reasonable, and I made this point actually on Special Report on Monday. I thought it was a good, fair question from you. I think that she didn't really answer your full question, but she also did make a pretty compelling point about vaccines and what vaccines can help prevent. Like, to me, it wasn't all that controversial of a back and forth, and yet it kind of went viral. What was your take on the question that you asked, sort of how you formulated it, and then the way she chose to respond, and maybe some of the outside noise based on that back and forth? Well, look, my question, I think that so far this administration, I'm the first person to go into the briefing to ask questions about COVID as somebody who just had COVID. And so what I had asked her, if anybody missed it, and thank you, by the way, Guy, for uh, saying that on the panel uh, about the question, but I asked her, look, uh, 
I'm triple vaxxed and still got COVID. You, Jen Psaki, triple vaxxed, still got COVID. So right. just from a messaging perspective, why are we still calling it a pandemic of the unvaccinated? Because I was sitting there triple vaxxed watching TV, unable to leave my apartment for a week. Uh, and I'm hearing the president say this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. It, the messaging, you know, what people and my critics online uh, were accusing me of is being anti-vax. Yep. I don't see how that is anti-vax when the first sentence, which everybody clips out on social media, I said, I understand that the vaccines prevent death. And then I said, I am triple vaxxed. I don't I don't see how that is uh, how that is anti-vax. And ultimately, it's not. It's, the, it's very the, the stupid. Point, Right. And basically, you could boil it down to, uh, you know, vaccines, good. The messaging, eh, explain. Bad. Your work. Bad. Oh, and and that's the thing. The messaging, messaging, or at least the messaging, is totally outdated. You can make a better case, maybe during the last spike, that this was still driven or it was a pandemic overwhelmingly driven by the unvaccinated, although not exclusively. That's totally out the window now with Omicron because of the experience that you personally have had, that Saki has had, and that millions of other people who are fully vaccinated and including boosted people have had. I mean, we had fully vaccinated people over the holidays here. I've said this a few times on the show. My dad, my brother, and my husband all got Omicron. They were all fully vaccinated. So this was not a pandemic of the unvaccinated in this household or in your household or in her household, I think it's a fair question to ask. It's fine for her to highlight the stats on hospitalization and on death. I think that's a fair and legitimate point, but it doesn't really respond, in my view, to the crux of your question. And it was just very strange for me to see, maybe not that strange, because you're at Fox News and there's a bunch of haters out there, people who want to defend Saki and Biden all the time. You ask a tough question, they don't like it. But it was stranger than usual, I would say, the backlash that you experienced. By the way, during that answer, I have to ask you just out of pure curiosity, I'm sure you were watching almost nothing but Fox News Channel 24-7. However, if you ever could pry yourself away from our fine network while you were at home isolating watching tv any wrecks like any things that maybe you binge watch that you could let us in on i actually i told jen this the other day i i think i have exhausted the full catalog of guy fieri content (laughs) and and that's diners drive-ins and dives i need more like i need more flavor town and when you're home you know the best thing about like the diners drive-ins and dives is uh, that's a way to feel like you are in all of these places you know yes. he goes to california he's in iowa he's in florida great it's like a little bit of an escape and uh, i also like I, I by the way I've about that show i love that when he's trying out like the signature dish of whatever the restaurant is and he takes that first bite every single time he reacts like it's the most delicious thing he's ever tasted well, I think that that's a show, you know, he's not a, they send somebody ahead of time to make sure it's good uh, for him, as opposed to some of these uh, newspaper food critics who, you know, just go kind of, uh, might have a harsher review. But Incognito. It, and, and so that's my recommendation. Uh, but he has an excellent first name also, I have to say. Yeah, that's right. You guys are uh, not not that different, probably. Yeah, two of the guys. All right, let's move on, Peter, although I, I could probably talk about Guys, grocery games with you, too, if we had time. We don't. You've covered this president quite 
a while now, all the way back to when he was an early stage presidential candidate. So you have done a lot of Biden coverage. What did you make of the tone and tenor in particular, and maybe the substance as well, of the speech he gave yesterday in Georgia? I mean, that was a far cry from what he communicated to the American people, for example, the day that he declared victory in November of 2020, when he was emphasizing cooperation and decency and we're not enemies. Kind of the opposite is what we saw yesterday. Were you surprised by any of it? Or was it sort of what you were expecting? Sort of what you're expecting, because you could say, yes, he's an institutionalist who now suddenly has this new opinion about Senate rules and he wants to change them for his own personal benefit. But you could also then look at it and say, well, he just wants to beat up on Trump some more. And that is something that for the last two years, they think that they have had the most success with, you know, just don't make it about me. Don't even make it about these issues that we're struggling with. Let's uh, who's the bad guy? OK, well, it's Trump. Uh, and so I don't think it was as off off the normal Biden path as some of the uh, opinion pieces would have you think in the last day. But it's also not something that they're going to be able to talk about at length because the midterms are coming up and Donald Trump is not what people are talking about. They're talking about COVID. They're talking about inflation. Yeah. They're talking about immigration. It won't be on the ballot in 22. Right. And maybe not on in 2024. And you get a sense that they around here are hoping he is because they've already got all these things written. Uh, but I, I don't know how much more mileage they're going to get out of talking about Donald Trump. Well, they're going to try. Meanwhile, Peter, last subject, there was a piece out in the Associated Press and Politico covered it as well. We highlighted it on this show briefly. It's the paltry number of sit-down interviews and press conferences that this president has held at this stage of his presidency. And they compared it to sort of his immediate predecessors in the modern era of American politics, and he's lagging way behind in those types of settings. I know the pushback to that critique from the White House and from Saki is, well, he does a lot of informal stuff where he'll take a question or two, and he does that more than some of the other people, so that kind of makes up for what he might be lacking in these other settings. Now, we've had this conversation in the past with guys like Chris Wallace. There's a big difference between a few like occasional shouted questions that he'll respond to versus sitting down for a prepared one-on-one interview where there are follow-ups and you know a lot of research is put into it and there's a chance to really probe deeper and force him to get off of just basic talking points or you know the formal setting where he takes one question after another in a in a press conference it's not the same thing but they're saying he's still available in a way that some of these criticisms don't really recognize or account for. You are part of that press corps covering him every day. What do you make of this overall storyline about his accessibility? So the two things that I would say about accessibility with Biden, number one, when you compare it to the Trump administration, the thing we used to hear all the time, because Trump was on Twitter, he's doing phone interviews, he's just popping up everywhere, uh, you would hear his spokespeople say, well, the president speaks for himself. Whereas here, you've got these Biden people in a more traditional office setting, and they say, we speak for the president. And sometimes that's even after the president 
said something, and they come out to say, no, 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 that's not what he meant. We know what yeah, he meant, clean and up. it's this. The other thing is uh, President Biden does a ton of these informal you know, and I've been lucky enough, you can get his attention at the end of an event, he'll answer a question, but that only works if he's having events and if he is, uh, if there's an opportunity for the press to go in to answer questions. Like right now, we're at a, at a time when it's been a couple of days since uh, people have gotten, you know, yesterday he's walking out to the helicopter, he stops for like a minute and then he leaves and then that's it. And so there is not a ton of depth there and there's not an opportunity to really explore any topics or get his point of view on any topics except what might be screaming on the front page of the Washington Post or the New York Times that day, where you're just shouting out, you know, at the things like yesterday where he's walking to the helicopter, people just scream out something like, I, I, COVID or Russia, and hope that he comes over <laughs> to answer the most broad topic, the most broad question. Do you uh, always and, at you the know, beginning of every day – do you always have a just-in-case question ready? I have many just-in-case questions ready. <laughs> All right, Peter. Many Ducey. topics, many uh, many follow-ups, and I've always got the backup material. So I'm well, ready. We we look forward to the next time you have an opportunity to ask one of those questions. We'll be watching Fox News's White House correspondent Peter Ducey recently recovered from COVID. Glad to hear that you're feeling better and your dad as well. I understand. Appreciate you dropping by, Peter. Talk again soon. Thanks a lot, guys. See you soon. It is the Guy Benson Show. It is the happy hour, and we'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. It is the happy hour. Last night, I joined Kennedy for her panel, and one of our topics, in fact, our last topic of the evening, was this report that there are scientists trying to work on a pill that could extend the human lifespan, potentially one day up to 150 years. And we were debating, is that something that is appealing to us? And the segment went off the rails. You'll hear Kennedy, you'll hear me, you'll hear Chris Hahn, who's the Democrat, although it's not really that important politically here. Uh, just, just an insane segment, but funny. Cut 37. All right, is there a way to fight aging and to live forever? The answer could be yes. Scientists are testing different types of drugs to slow down aging processes, increasing the average lifespan. Although a magic pill that could boost life expectancy from 77 years to 150, not likely anytime soon, researchers say a 10 to 20 percent increase in lifespan is conceivable. But do you want to live to be 150? Guy. Do I get to grow old with you and Dreamboat together? Yes. Because that sounds appealing. Yes. What doesn't trouble. sound appealing? This you. is what I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> true. Fact check. True. Would this be that it would these drugs would extend your life mm -hmm. in old age, so you would still age at the same rate, would become an old person, then would live much longer as an old person? Yes. That's a question on quality of life. Like, mm. do you want to be a hundred and 40, mm -hmm. or does the whole process of aging over, let's say, 80 years extend to 150? Because that's more that's appealing. So I'm asking the tough questions here. I also asked, would I want to be 150, perhaps, if I was allowed to grow old with Kennedy and Adam? She calls him Dreamboat. She referred to that as a power thruple. <laughs> and then she turns to Chris, where things really got just ridiculous listen to cut 38 that's what they're they're trying right. to uh marry together and they call it the health span 
as opposed to the lifespan, the amount of time uh, that you have vibrancy mm. and physicality and cognitive function. That's what they're also at the same time trying to increase because, you know, it's like no one wants to have like their eyes glued shut and be like, mer, mer, mashed potatoes when they're 150, <laughs> but everyone wants to be like, I'm a walking boner. <laughs> right, Chris? <laughs> Exactly. I want to be a walking boner when I'm 140 right. years old. Right. I'm sure that'll be very appealing to a lot of people in America. I look, I, I don't I, I, I would love to live a long life. Like Guy said, if we could just be healthy the entire time and we could still run and, and exercise and play golf and have fun and go skiing. Great. But if I'm sitting in a chair watching Netflix, I would imagine by the time I'm 140, I'll get through my entire queue. So I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, if the Democrat Party is still in power, don't worry. They will have cannibalized you uh, in the reign of terror. And you're going to be in a very dark room with no Netflix at all. Sorry, buddy. (laughs) I lost it when she did the impression of a 140-year-old. and She says mashed potatoes. So that was on national television last night. You never know. You never know what you're going to get with Kennedy, which is why we love her. The happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show, back on the rails when we come back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. On the happy hour, it is the Guy Benson Show. We spoke earlier today with Carl Rove about a lot. Carl had a lot to say about the politics of the day, President Biden, the midterms, and more. Here's a taste of my conversation with Carl Rove. There can be no defending of the beating of police officers during a violent riot at the Capitol building. And if we also believe in the rule of law, we also have to look at the, that you referred to there, Carl, the court cases, one after another, where judges found and ruled that there was not evidence that the election was stolen and that this was fraud, including some very conservative judges, a number of whom were appointed by Trump himself. That is also an element of respecting the rule of law in that whole process. And I think that the sort of alternate reality that you just painted or the hypothetical situation, the the hypothetical situation where it was the shoe was on the other foot and the Democrats had done precisely these exact same things based on the same exact amount of evidence or lack of evidence. I think that that is, if people are being honest with themselves, a very obvious series of questions to answer about how conservatives would and should have reacted if it had been a role reversal situation. And, you know, I think that that is what we can leave it there, but I think it's a very compelling point that you make. In the meantime, Carl, we have the president of the United States, and we spent most of the first hour on this, going down to Georgia yesterday, lying his face off repeatedly about almost everything related to this alleged voting rights crisis that they need to fix with a partisan takeover and blowing up the Senate rules because of Jim Crow in Georgia and Texas or whatever. It was a a truly breathtaking flurry of dishonesty from Biden, but it wasn't just the dishonesty. It was the categorization of Republicans and even some Democrats who don't agree with him sort of not just uh, partially, but almost explicitly calling them racists, comparing them to segregationists, suggesting that they are enemies of the country, domestic enemies. I mean, this is 
pretty disgusting, outrageous stuff from any president ever. And it's particularly galling, I think, coming from a guy who sold himself to the American people as a moderate restorer of norms and cooperation. And that is not what we saw on display yesterday. No, not at all. Uh, I was terribly disappointed in it. And uh, uh, there's a, I, I wrote about this for my column tomorrow in the Wall Street Journal because you're, you're right. He, sub, he substituted adjectives for evidence. And the claims that he was making in that speech, you know, decrying voter suppression and election repression and, and, and pointing his finger at the Georgia Republican legislature. Let, 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 let me give you just two examples. He started his assault by saying, quote, they're making it harder for you to vote by mail. Now, what he's referring to is a state law that said local officials and private groups cannot mail unsolicited absentee ballot applications. No state law previously allowed it. But in 2020, because of the pandemic, uh, they, they, they allowed emergency regulations to be in place that allowed election officials to mail out, and, and political groups followed, uh, applications for, for um, mail-in absentee ballots. Because in, in Georgia, it's no excuse. You can vote absentee by mail. All you got to do is apply for the ballot. Well, when people were mailing out applications, the county was mailing it out, and Democratic groups were mailing it out, and so-called third-party groups were mailing it out. And so election officials received a wave of multiple requests from the same voter, because they got one from the county, and then they might have got one from Black, Black Voters Matter, and then they would have got one from the New Georgia Coalition. So what the Georgia legislature did is it said, you cannot mail out uh, absentee ballot applications. Now, Biden says that's voter suppression. Well, let's compare Georgia with New York. Like Georgia, New York requires people seeking to vote absentee by mail to apply for the ballot. They don't get mailed to the mailed in the application automatically. In fact, New York voters turned down automatic vote by mail in a statewide referendum last fall by 55-45. Yeah, now, they rejected furthermore, it. Furthermore, they rejected it, turned it down. Georgia allows anybody, anybody can vote by mail absentee. All you got to do is say, I want to vote absentee, send me a ballot. New York, the only people who can vote absentee by mail are people who say, I'll be out of town on election day. I'm ill and unable to go to the polls. I'm disabled. I'm in a VA hospital or I'm in a jail for a misdemeanor charge. That's it. So uh, who's more repressive? When, when, when is Joe Biden going to fly to Times Square and denounce New York for being Jim Crow 2.0 because they severely limit the ability of people to vote well, absentee but, by mail? And Georgia says anybody point. can. The whole point yeah. is that it doesn't matter what the details are. It doesn't matter what the truth is. This is a power grab by the Democrats, and they're going to lie and smear people no matter what it takes, and they'll just simply overlook the obvious glaring hypocrisy. My full interview with Carl Rove, the architect, available in its entirety, along with the entirety of today's show, free of charge, on demand, as part of the podcast, of course, every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your free podcasts. When we come back, an update on the status, the state of producer Christine. There's been some backsliding, I would say, on the status quo, unfortunately, We'll get to that when we return.
For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Wednesday. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. That's the website. Podcast always free. Tune in tonight. I'm on Special Report with Brett Bayer and company. That's in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern time. We might be doing an early panel tonight, then a follow-up panel later in the show. So hope to see you there. Fox News Channel coming up very shortly. Well, we have been talking to producer Christine about a number of things happening in her life, including her Omicron COVID diagnosis. And it seemed like she was through the worst of it. She got some steroids. She was feeling like a new woman. But there has been some deterioration, it would seem, on that front. Then there's another life narrative of hers that we've also been tracking. There's an update there that might be a little bit less than positive. So, Christine, first of all, your daughter has been fine and over COVID now for a while. It seemed like you and your husband were both on the mend. But then what happened? Things got worse? I I was doing so much better uh, when I was on the roids. And uh, yesterday was the first day I was off of it, and I feel like I'm back to square one again. And I'm not really sure how many times, you know, how many rounds of steroids I can take because I'm starting to look like a cabbage patch kid. My <laughs> face, it's not funny. Cabbage <laughs> not cookie. Funny at all. Sorry. My face looks so distorted. I even said to Bobby last night, should I maybe put on some fake tanner? Like, do you think? And he goes, so you're just going to look like an orange cabbage patch kid? No. <laughs> he said, just leave it alone. Oh, so he's conceding the cabbage patch kid point? Yeah, my face isn't looking pretty right now. Let me tell it's you. Kind that. of like a, like a moon face situation? Yes. Yes. It's, and it feels droopy. At first, I told them I thought I had that. What's that? Um, Bell's palsy? I thought I maybe had that because I felt droopy. But no, I don't think it's that. I think it's just the roids. So you're not happy with the face situation, let's say. But what about other symptoms? Like, are you still feeling way off? Are you tired? Do you have a bad cough? Like, are there other some like like traditional COVID tied symptoms that are still nagging here? Or is it just other stuff at this point? So I thought it was just other stuff. But um, once I got off the steroids yesterday, I could feel last night and into the morning, the cough is coming back. I feel intense pressure and like almost pain in my chest. And that's why the doctor's worried. He's like, I just don't like that. He, especially for Omicron. Cause he said it really isn't hitting the chest. It's really I mean, more it, of a, it could be Delta, right? It could be. Yes. Yes, it could be. Um, so he, uh, he we're going to have a, another appointment <laughs> later on tonight. More steroids and for Cookie? Either more steroids or he said maybe a antibiotic now. Um, have you been I, having I any strange anger management issues? Any rage, if you will, being on these steroids and now coming off of them? I actually haven't. Most people, they say I'm on one, can I say the name of it, called prednisone. And a lot of people say you get depressed being on it and, you know, you shouldn't be on it for a long time. I, I, same thing like the vaccine. Remember, I had the opposite effects of everybody else 
I, I actually enjoyed being on it. I felt like I was happier, had more energy. Um, but we'll see what happens. It's just, it, this thing is lingering. It really is no joke. It, you know, you just, you just got to be careful. But luckily, my husband is much better, and Megan is completely fine. So, so you're sort of the, just, the straggler here. Yeah, yeah, but hopefully... Let's Although see, you tested positive days. last, right? You were the last yeah. one to test positive, so it would make sense that if it was even a remotely similar trajectory that you would perhaps fully recover last as well. I tested positive 10 days after Megan and I think seven days after Bobby. Okay, so that kind of makes sense, even though you were feeling sick before you tested positive, right? You were testing negative, and we're like, we think you've got it. Like, you could test negative, you've got it, and then lo and behold, in comes the positive test. Steroids were what you needed at the time, but now they've run their course, and you're still kind of in the weeds of this thing. You've been working from home the whole time. Have you ever come close to, like, calling out sick? Because it's been too bad? Uh, yeah, I think last week, one of the days. Uh, oh, <laughs> Wyatt's not here, but poor Wyatt. Um, I made him actually, which is so not his job, and I'm sorry to the bosses, but I actually made him call me to wake me up from a nap. <laughs> that was wow. his job for the morning, <laughs> to make sure Cookie woke up. Did he do that very quietly? <laughs> he literally Christine, said, cookie, wakey, wakey. cookie. Yeah, it was right before the meeting, and I, I honestly couldn't keep my eyes open. I thought I got hit by a truck, but I didn't want to call out. So I said, Wyatt, I'm going to close my eyes for 20 minutes. Please wake me up. And so he called and said, cookie, it's almost time. <laughs> In the meantime, you've got this other major life project that you've embarked upon, and we've talked about it here on the home stretch multiple times. We were really here at the, the ground floor, so to speak, of your scheme to sell your house. You eventually went forward with the plan. We had that conversation. Then you got an offer. We debated that on the air. You ultimately accepted the offer, and I kind of assumed that this whole thing was done because they had waived contingencies and you were satisfied with the asking price and so on and so forth and, and what they'd offered. But I discovered today that this is, in fact, not only not completed yet, but, in fact, perhaps in peril, in flux. What's going on? So I think I spoke to you about this. I don't remember if we talked about this on air or off air, but um, the people that wanted that want to buy our house, if you remember correctly, wanted to waive, you know, the home inspection and the appraisal. And then they said, you know what, we're going to have a home inspection, but this is more for our notes. Well, their notes mm. came back to us and they wanted a substantial amount off the house. They either wanted us to, you know, put a lot of money into the house to fix it, or they wanted us to give them a credit, you know, taking money off the house. Uh, we have just replied to them within the last couple hours saying, no, uh, you, there will be no credit. This is an as is, take it or leave it. And please let us know, you know, at your earliest convenience. So we could even know by today, if they accept it, then we move forward. And I think we sold our house. Uh, and if they if they decline, we are starting. We're back to square one. Good news is my real estate agent has said that she has had nonstop calls about this house. Uh, there's one lady she said that calls her every single day 
asking if the deal has fallen through and can she, you know, look at the house. So obviously nobody can come look at this house while we have COVID anyway. So we will just be back to square one and see what happens. Are you anxious about this? Or are you just sort of like, it is what it is, whatever happens, happens? I, I'm a little anxious about this. And as you know, I've talked to you about this off air. Um, I really want to get to a psychic because I believe that maybe that will give me some clarity over nope. some things in my life. Being this being one of them, I, I, I'm just going to ignore the no. Um, and I was going to make an appointment this weekend to go to the psychic. Uh, but oh, obviously, Christine. I don't I, I think that th- this one, she is only she's not only a psychic, but she she says she's a life coach. So I think that maybe she can give me. Why would why would she need to coach anything if she can already see what's going to happen to you? Because she can guide me. No, it's just you know, it's a she, grift. No, she's very popular in New Jersey. So I I wanted to make an appointment with her, but I just think right now, obviously not the best timing. So I really was hoping she was going to tell me, you know, is this going to work? Is this going to go through? There's other things that are going on uh, with my husband. So, but um, I'll let you know when the psychic happens. I actually wanted you to come with me to that, but if you don't want to. That is a hard, hard no from me. What did your daughter have to say about the psychic? She said, Mommy, how do you know they're telling you the truth? And I said, well, you just have to believe. And she said, so basically, it's just like, you know, like a story. I I don't know how she put it, kind of like one of her Disney movies. She's like, did you have to believe in it? Like, she didn't believe in it. And I said, you know, they also can speak to people that have died. And she goes, all right, well, if that's the case, then I want to talk to Jesus. I'll come with you if they can talk to Jesus for me. (laughs) She's being much more rational and reasonable about this than her mother? Are you surprised? No, but I really do believe in that stuff. And I, I haven't been to a psychic in many, many... I used to go all the time. Like, I used to get my cards read all the time. When was the last time ago. you went to Mass or Confession? That might be... Oh, I, I do that, too. Actually, Megan and I are going to Mass this Sunday. Megan and I, uh, we try to attend Mass. Yeah, don't tell the priest. He probably wouldn't like that. Yeah, so many layers to Hail, cookie, right? Some Hail Marys. Some Hail Marys <laughs> for the uh, crystal ball palm reading or whatever you're up to. No, aye, it's tarot cards. There's no crystal ball. It's tarot cards. Oh, well, well, in that case, it makes perfect sense. That's, that's much more uh, scientific and accurate, reliable. All she has to do is be like, ooh, I sense confusion and anxiety in your life. You're like, oh, my God, yes, you're nailing it. That is that has happened before. And then you just have to be careful about mm-hmm. the selling because they try to sell you, you know, because there's healing crystals. So you just have to be careful. <laughs> the no, whole seriously. thing is fake. <laughs> no, you're already no, you're don't. already falling for the grift if you're there, in my opinion. She's a life coach. Did I not tell you that? No, that life coach is a very different thing. And by the way, why would you listen to that life coach when you never listen to this life coach who actually gives you good advice and actually knows you? Ooh, that's a good point. Mic drop. We're done. I'm on special report. Fox News Channel tonight coming up in the next hour. Back here tomorrow for more on the radio, of course. Same time, same place. Have a great evening. We will talk to you very soon.
Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.